Let me invite you to grab your Bible this morning and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I am a forgetful person. Anybody else that way tend to be a little forgetful sometimes? Yeah, I, I have to write things down, right? I keep my task list, my calendar, my other information very close. I often ask my wife to help me remember things that I don't need to forget. I'm forgetful. And we're all that way from time to time. We're busy. we got a lot going on in our lives. But you know what I found out? You are not going to believe this. I discovered that a lot of people forget the sermons that they hear. Yes, I know, I know. I heard a statistic one time that by Wednesday morning, most people forget the sermon they heard on the previous Sunday. And I can't remember the exact percentage uh, Okay, no. Um, but look, I know that's not you guys. I know that uh, you all in this service, you remember every single thing I say. I know, thank you. I know if I were to call you on Wednesday morning right when you wake up, you'd be able to tell me verbatim all the points of my sermon, right? Right? Nod your head. Make me feel better. Okay, yeah, yeah. Now look. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Seriously, it's, it's, it's okay. There are many weeks that I don't remember what I preached on Sunday. You know, sometimes I, I come up with a really good idea for a sermon illustration. like, oh, this is going to be good. And then I found out I just told it a few weeks earlier. And I've come to believe something that you may find a little bit strange coming from a preacher. But I don't believe sermons are meant to be remembered. Now, there's always going to be a few sermons that stick with us like you. I can think of a few. I know exactly where I was and who the preacher was and what he said. Most of the time when people tell me they remember something I said, it's usually one of my dumb stories. <laughs> but really, I don't believe sermons are necessarily meant to be remembered. The goal of a sermon is worship. It's worship of God through the proclaiming and hearing of his word. What we want is to be formed by the word of God in the present moment while the sermon's being preached. If we can look back days and weeks or years from now and remember the sermon, that's great. I'll be so happy. But that's not the main goal. And to be honest, I don't think it's realistic. We should be much more concerned with what God is doing in the present moment while the word is being preached. We're not aiming for head knowledge to be memorized. What we want is heart knowledge to be transformed. So if you don't remember my sermons, I want you to know that's okay. I don't either. <laughs> and I'm letting you off the hook today. I don't worry about it anymore. Because what I want most is for you to remember the word of God. Sermons come and go. Preachers come and go. In the course of your life, you're probably going to hear hundreds and hundreds of sermons from all kinds of great people. But the Word of God stands forever. It's eternal. It's always with us. So my aim, my primary goal when I preach is to bring you the Word. To worship alongside you and to be formed with you by God's Word. So that as we go about our lives... We have our Bibles with us and we go back again and again to the Word and we continue to be changed by it through the course of our lives. We hear it sung and preached and prayed on Sunday and then we go home throughout the week and we read it and study it and memorize it. I want us to be a church that treasures and remembers the Bible. And so to that end, we're going to do something new in this series through the book of Romans. To help us remember the word better, we've built in a few summary messages. See, whenever we get to the big end of a section of the uh, end of a big section of Romans, what we're going to do, we're going to pause, 
We're going to step back and we're going to summarize all that we've seen so far. We are being intentionally repetitive. So if it sounds like I'm saying the same things week after week, it's because, guess what, I am. (laughs) We're doing this to help us remember. But we're also doing these summary messages to help us see the book of Romans as a whole. As we get down into the words and phrases and verses each week, it can become difficult to keep the big picture in mind. Let's remember that when Paul sat down to write the letter to the Roman church, he did not break it up into chapters and verses. There were no chapters or verses. He just wrote one big, long letter. The breaks were added later to help us organize things, but this is one big letter. And after he finished writing it, he, he, writing it, he would have passed it off to a messenger who would have traveled to the church and delivered it to them by hand. And then the church would have received it by having it read out loud to the entire congregation. So they would have heard Romans as one big, long letter. My point is, Romans is a whole. Paul is making one big connected argument. Verses and chapters, they're building on one another. So yes, we want to study the trees and the branches and the leaves, but we also want to step back and see the whole forest. A famous preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he spent 12 years every Friday night preaching through the book of Romans. 372 sermons, and he didn't even make it all the way through. He got to chapter 14 and had to stop because of health issues. But that's a long time in one book, and we're not going to spend quite that long. We're going to be in here for about a year. But still, we want to make sure we don't lose sight of the whole book because that's easy to do in Romans. So that's the purpose of our summary sermons, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take Romans 1 through 3, remind ourselves of what we've learned so far, and then tie a nice bow on it all. And here is that bow. Here's the way that we can sum up all of Romans 1 through 3. It's this. Why everyone needs Jesus. Why everyone needs Jesus. That's really the message that Paul wants to get across. He wants to make sure we understand why every single person on this planet needs Jesus. So let's go back through these three chapters quickly. And along the way, I want to give you three big points that we learned. That show us why everyone needs Jesus. Look back with me first at Romans chapter 1. First part of Romans 1, you may remember, is Paul's introduction, his his greeting. And he sets the stage by telling us that the big point of his letter is the gospel. He wants the Roman church to see the beauty and the fullness of the gospel and how to live it out. Then you'll see in the next section is kind of his customary prayer for the church. He talks about his desire to go and visit them and to reach the global church with the gospel. And then came the big verses, which we said were really the thesis statement of the whole letter. Look at Romans 1, 16 through 17. Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. These are the verses that really set the stage for the rest of the book. What Paul is doing for 15 more chapters is really explaining these verses. How is the gospel salvation for everyone who believes? Well, that's what he unpacks from here on. And you'll remember that he started with the bad news. Like a lawyer, he's building his case for the gospel message. He's forming this argument. He's starting at the beginning, and he's telling us if Jesus is the solution, we need to first know the problem. And that brought us to the last half 
of Romans 1. Look at verses 18 through 20. Paul wrote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul laid out here in this section some very important foundational truths that we need to know. He said that God has revealed himself to everyone and yet everyone has rejected him. As a result, his his wrath, his judgment is against us. Paul then goes on to explain how this works. He talks about our idolatry, how we worship other things in God's place. He he talks about God handing us over to our evil desires. And then he shows some of the specific ways that this bears itself out in our culture and our world today. And all throughout these verses, Paul is making this point. Here's the first big point we learned in Romans 1 through 3. Number one, no one is innocent. Why does everyone need Jesus? Because no one is innocent. And that's the point of this passage in Romans 1 is to show us that every single person has sinned against the holy God and deserves his righteous judgment. This is all of us. I mean, none of us are exempt from this. All of us, this is our life story before Christ. Sometimes when I ask people when they became a Christian, they'll tell me, they say, you know, I've I've always been a Christian. What they usually mean is that they grew up going to church or they came from a Christian family. But none of us have always been a Christian. There was a time when you were suppressing the truth about God and worshiping other things and running away from him. You may have been very young like I was when you lived in that state, but all of us were in that place at some point. And sometimes I'm not sure we fully understand how bad off we were without Jesus. Like I think we all know and we readily admit, yeah, I'm a sinner. And people typically having no problem saying, yeah, I've done some bad things in my life. I've made some mistakes. That's only scratching the surface of how truly depraved we are. We talked about how sin is more than just doing bad things. Sin is like a disease that we're born with. We were born sinners from the womb. And sin has infected every part of us so that all of us, every part of us is corrupted and broken. And, and ultimately what makes sin so serious is that it's an offense against the holy God. It's a rejection of him. It's an attack on him. The God who loved us and created us when we sinned, we're breaking off a relationship with God. You guys remember the first sin that ever happened in the world in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit from a tree. And as a result, now all of humanity has fallen and broken. Everything wrong with our world today stems from that very first sin in the garden. All because they ate a piece of fruit from a tree? You ever thought about that? I mean, what was the big deal about eating some fruit from a tree? Here's the thing. Adam and Eve's sin was not just about eating the fruit. It was about rejecting God's rule over them. See, God gave them everything they could have ever wanted. They only had one rule. One rule to to remind them that they were not God, that God was God. And as they lived with him, they lived under him. And when they broke that rule, they rejected God. You remember what Satan said to them to tempt Adam and Eve? He said, if you eat this, you'll be like God. And that's what they wanted. 
That's what's at the heart of eating the fruit. Adam and Eve were not content to live in a perfect world under God's perfect rule. They wanted to be God. They wanted to be in charge. And whenever we sin, we do the exact same thing. We look God square in the face and we say to him, I don't want you. I want to be in charge. I know what's best for me. You get out of my life. This is what Romans 1, 18 through 32 is making clear for us. Our ultimate crime is a rejection of God. And when it comes to this crime, no one is innocent. At the end of chapter 1, we talked about how some of Paul's readers would have been nodding their heads in agreement. They loved what Paul was saying because they weren't thinking about themselves. They were thinking about the Gentiles. They believed because of their special status as the people of God that they were going to be exempt from God's judgment. So they loved this. And that's why in chapter 2, he, Paul shifts gears. He begins to show how the Jewish people have the same problem as the Gentile people, how they're, they're also sinners who stand under the judgment of God. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You'll remember we talked here in this section about the problem with morality. Just like the Jewish people of Paul's day, we tend to think of ourselves as moral and good people. And the problem with morality is that we have become deceived into thinking we're good enough for heaven. But morality can't save us. Because as we said, we're not as good as we like to think we are. Even when we do good, we often have bad motives. And even if we were actually pretty good and decent people, it still would not erase the stain of sin on our hearts. Good just ain't good enough. Then in the last half of chapter 2, we talked about religion. The outward-focused, pharisaical, legalistic, self-righteous kind of false religion. And this was common to the Jews of Paul's day. He knew because this was, used to be him. So he went right after them, showing how the law and how circumcision were not enough to save them either. And he said this in Romans 2, 28 through 29. He said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul explained that external actions, outward actions, no matter how spiritual or religious they may be, they cannot make us right with God. What we need is an inward heart change. We need God to change us from the inside out. So morality won't save us. Religion won't save us. And that raised some questions for the people listening to Paul. What's the point of being Jewish? I mean, how is this fair for God to judge his own people? How can God be good and faithful if he judges the people he loves? And we spent a week wrestling through those tough questions in Romans 3, 1 through 8. And then Paul summed up his bad news in Romans 3, 9 through 20. This was the big one, the final nail in our coffin. Look at Romans 3, 9 with me. Paul wrote, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Then jump to Romans 3.20. He closed in this way. He said, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So everyone's under sin, and there's no work we can do to fix our problem. 
We do not have the ability or capacity within ourselves to save ourselves. And this brings us to the second major point we learn in Romans 1 through 3. Number two, no one is worthy. Why does everyone need Jesus? Because no one is worthy. If the first point was like a wound from a cut, then this one is like pouring salt in that wound. And this downright stings. And people don't like to hear this. We live in this, this cultural moment when people believe that we are worthy. We're special. We're unique. We're important. And people love to use this phrase, you deserve blank. I was at a park a few weeks ago in Olathe with my family, and someone had written a message in chalk right there on the sidewalk for everyone to see as you walked into the playground. It said, you deserve happiness. And I thought, wow, thank you so much, chalk message. It fixed all my problems. <laughs> I'm kidding. But I did stop and think. I thought, do I deserve happiness? Like, I want to be happy. I want my family and people around me to be happy. And I know God wants his people to be full of joy in Christ. But is that what I deserve? You hear people say sometimes, you deserve to be loved. You deserve respect. You deserve to be appreciated. You deserve everything the world has to offer. But is that true? That language embodies the idea that we think really highly of ourselves. We tend to live and think as if the world was created for us. And bottom line, we like to think and act as if we are gods. But according to Romans 1 through 3, that could not be more false. If we're sinners... And if we've rejected God, and if the wages of sin is death, and if God's wrath is against us, then what you and I deserve is hell. And that's not my opinion. That's not some fancy preacher speak. That's what the Word of God says. It's true, and we can try and ignore it all we want. We can write all the sidewalk messages we want, but it does not change the truth. We know this. We know something's wrong. We know the problem is us. We know we're going to give an account. And we suppress those feelings. We, we push down the guilt and we tell ourselves all this inspirational stuff. But we're not helping others. We're not helping ourselves by ignoring the truth. We need to understand and we need to tell ourselves that things are not good. We are not worthy. And that doesn't mean God doesn't love us. He does. And that doesn't mean that every person isn't created in his image. They are. But when it comes to eternity, when it comes to our spiritual standing, I am not worthy being saved based on myself. I do not deserve God's love and salvation. I deserve his wrath and judgment and hell. And that's exactly where we're headed if something radical doesn't take place. And we get, we got to feel the, the, the weight of this passage no matter how hard it is to hear. We can't skip it. We can't rush past it. We can't try and sugarcoat it. We need to sit with it. And once we get this firmly grasped in our minds, we need to sprint, jump, and fall headfirst into the next passage, into the good news. And that's what Paul gave us to close out chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This passage gives us our third and last big point of Romans 1 through 3. It's this, number three, no one is without hope. Why does everyone need Jesus? Because no one is without hope. And boy, am I glad to hear that. Because based on the stuff I was saying, things sounded pretty hopeless. But praise God, he made a way where there was no way. He fixed a problem we could never fix on our own. And he accomplished that by sending his own son, Jesus, God in human flesh, to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death on the cross, and to rise from the dead with eternal life. We needed someone outside of ourselves, some kind of Savior, and we got a perfect one in Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus saves. And he doesn't save the good, the powerful, the rich, the famous, the people who got it all together. He saves sinners. He saves the ones who are not innocent, who are not worthy, and who know it. And he does not give us what we deserve. That's grace. And that means no one's without hope. I don't care who it is. It doesn't matter how bad or good, how spiritual or unspiritual, how uh, Christian or religious or atheistic they might be. It doesn't matter how messed up someone is, how broken things are, how far gone they seem, how hard their heart may appear. No one is without hope. If God could save me, he could save anyone. If God could save Paul, he could save anyone. If they will put their faith and trust in Jesus. That's the message of Romans 1 through 3. Everyone needs Jesus. We're not innocent. We're not worthy. But we are not without hope. And as we close out this section of the book, I've, I've really been trying to reflect on these first three chapters. And, and I'll be honest with you. This is tough stuff. Like there were a lot of weeks where I was writing my sermon and praying and kind of getting ready to come up here. And I thought, man, it's going to be the week. These people are going to boo me off. <laughs> And they're going to get tired of hearing about all these terrible things. And This is heavy. It's brutal. It's not fluffy and fuzzy. But I think this is so important. I needed to wrestle with these passages. I needed to hear these sermons. You guys think I'm preaching to you. I'm preaching to me first. And I think the biggest takeaway from Romans 1 through 3 for me was my need for gospel humility. Humility is not beating up on yourself or looking down on yourself. Humility is seeing yourself in light of who God is. It's been said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's thinking not first and foremost about me, but about God's glory and the good of others. And gospel humility is humility that comes from the gospel. When we hear and we, we understand and we believe this gospel message about Jesus, it should produce in us and undeniable humility. And that gospel humility should change the way we, we view God, ourselves, and others. First, gospel humility should change the way we view God. If Romans 1 through 3 is true, then what kind of God must we have that he would save someone like me? What kind of love must God have to save someone who deserves his wrath and judgment? What kind of mercy and faithfulness must God have to give up his own son for a sinner like me? 
These verses should really give us a bigger view of God. It should cause us to fall in awe before him, seeing him in all his holiness and glory. We should marvel at the fact that somehow God can be just and the justifier. We should be amazed at his perfect plan of salvation. And this message should lead us into more love and more worship and more obedience. It should lead us to decrease and Jesus to increase. That, that's gospel humility. Second, gospel humility should change the way we view ourselves. If Romans 1 through 3 is true, then how could I ever look down on someone else? If I'm just as sinful as the worst person I know, then how could I possibly have any ounce of pride or self-righteousness? I mean, how could I talk poorly or think badly and look with shame upon someone else who's a sinner like me? And if hell is what I deserve, then how can I possibly complain about my life? How can I possibly be bitter or angry that things didn't go my way or unforgiving towards someone? How could I get mad and have anger at people or hold a grudge? How could I pout and woe is me and take my job and my family and my life for granted? Think about it. If hell is what I deserve, then isn't every second I'm not there a gift from God? How could I be without joy, without thankfulness? That's gospel humility. And third and last, gospel humility should change the way we view others. If Romans 1 through 3 is true, then how can I keep this to myself? How can I not tell others about their coming judgment if they don't trust in Christ? That would be like finding the cure for cancer and locking it in a vault. In light of these verses, I should burn with a love for all people everywhere. I should have a burden and a desire to help others to go to the nations, to, to help people find the hope that I have. It's been said as Christians, we're just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. That's gospel humility. Listen to me. If Romans 1 through 3 has not gripped you, if it has not stirred you up, you need to go back and read it again. If this book has not caused you to love and appreciate God more, then you need to open up this book and pray that God would get this truth into your heart. If this has not caused you to praise Jesus even more for your salvation, then look, you're not listening. And if Romans 1 through 3 is not giving you a fresh burden for your lost neighbors, your lost co-workers, and the people in your family, then you miss the whole point. Don't miss this truth. Don't miss the power of these verses. Let's not just move on and go to another verse. And another message, without really getting this first, what is God teaching you? So often we think, oh, man, I'm so glad he said that. Those people really need to hear it. <laughs> we think about, oh, I can't wait to get home and share this with my spouse, my kids, my friends. No, what is God saying to you through his word? Maybe like me, he's teaching you gospel humility. Maybe he's convicting you on your need to share your faith. Maybe he's showing you your pride and your focus on yourself and taking your life for granted. Maybe it's something else. Or maybe today after hearing the gospel, you realizing that you have never surrendered your life to Jesus. You've been in church. You've been a good person. You've said prayers. You've walked aisles. You've even been baptized. But you've never really given it all to Jesus. Whatever it is, don't miss it. Don't miss it. 
We may not have another chance. Don't miss it. But let's respond to him together right now today. And once we've done that, then we can move on to Romans 4, okay? Let's go to the Lord now in prayer.